I want to invite you this morning to turn to the book of Romans. If you're not familiar with the Bible or have a, a church background, that's what's called in the New Testament. It's towards the right-hand side of the Bible. The book of Romans is actually a book within a bigger book called the Bible, and it was originally a letter, and it was to the church at Rome uh, from a guy by the name of, uh, we called him the Apostle Paul, but it was inspired by God, written more than likely from a church in Corinth. And so Corinth was in what we call modern-day Greece, and it was written to a church in Italy about 2,000 years ago. And if you've been with us the past couple weeks or a couple months, we've gone through verse by verse the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And it's really deep theology, but it's great stuff, especially if you're trying to share the gospel with friends or understand what's going on in their hearts and minds, because that, that can be really challenging. And we've arrived at chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Last week, we covered almost uh, half of a chapter. This week, we're only going to cover two simple verses. I've entitled this morning's message, Worship Through Your Mind. Worship Through Your Mind. And quite honestly, if I were at a worship conference right now and I said that, they might run me off the stage because there, there's, uh, there's people who are wired to like worship with their heart and music and all sorts of stuff. But this morning's uh, passage that we're going to cover is surprising in a lot of ways. As a matter of fact, if you are a good Bible student and you have a couple different uh, translations of the Bible, you'll notice some challenges in this, the different translations on how they're translating a couple words that are really important to help you understand. And these two passages, verse 1 and 2, are actually connected. They're a unifying thought. They're not two separate things. So let's dig into it right away. And this is after the Apostle Paul had spent 11 chapters going over the depth of the gospel, the saving message of God, who Jesus Christ was, what he did for us on the cross, and how it applied both to Gentiles and to the Jews of Paul's day. Back then, they still had the genealogies that you were very much either Jewish or Gentile, but they were coming together in the church. And so Paul begins in chapter 12, verse 1. I'll be reading initially out of the ESV. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's where we're going to pause. So let's go back word by word. He says, I appeal, the Apostle Paul is appealing to you, therefore, based upon the past 11 chapters, that Jesus Christ and who he did and his sacrifice for you, as a response to that, what ought we to do? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And this is where the Apostle Paul has taken, um, more than likely, I believe here, a specific term used for Israel, used for his fellow Jews, and he is applying it in a spiritual way to both Jews and Gentiles in the church as a whole. Now, sometimes if you've ever run across this, I don't run across it too much here in, in the Northwest, but in the South where I'm from, especially when we go down and take mission trips, boy, in the South, it's like a whole new lingo when you walk into a church. It's like, hey, Brother Sam, hey, Sister Sue. And if you're not used to that, you're like, man, these people are kind of strange. They're like on crack or something. They're brother this and sister that. And after a while, it's kind of cool. It's like, yeah, it feels good to be a part of a family. And you walk away talking about it. And you walk into McDonald's and you're going, hey, brother Bob. And the lady behind the counter is like, 
he is one ethnicity and, and she's another. And how are they all related? They're like kind of like, what's up with the whole brother-sister thing? But here's the cool deal. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are born again according to God. A miracle occurs in your life, in your heart, and you're a new creation in Christ. And you are now part of a family. And that's kind of cool here at Blue Mountain Baptist Church because we're no longer like this house church that we started when we planted the church. We're bigger, but we're not so big that we've lost that family feel yet. It's getting there. But here's the neat deal. If you go to a small group, a Blue Mountain Act group in someone's home, you recover that and you love one another, you admonish one another, you encourage one another, and you really develop that brother and sister relationship. If you don't have that, I want to encourage you once again to get connected in that way because it is a whole new level of understanding what it means to live out Christ in your life. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. This is a, by the mercies of God, this is a, uh, a phrase that he uses three times in the book of Romans. This is the first that occurs. It will occur in later chapters as we cover. But he says, by the mercies of God is the basis for his appeal. I love what an old commentator said about this. He says, whereas the heathen are prone to sacrifice in order to obtain mercy, biblical faith teaches that the divine mercy provides the basis for sacrifice as the fitting response. God's mercy is the basis for us to respond in sacrifice. We don't have to come to God in works trying to earn God's mercy. No, we receive it when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So if you've ever felt like you are not good enough to come before God, or maybe even not good enough to pray to him or talk to him, or good enough to come into a church. No, we all come to God sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is his mercy that allows that access and his grace. That is what is so amazing about the God of the Bible. He's this merciful God of unending mercies. And he says, his mercy, I appeal to you, brother, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He's drawn on Old Testament imagery, but possibly even some of the cults in Paul's day in the ancient Near East, in Rome and in Corinth, there were a great many cults that would require sacrifice. So whether you were Gentile or Jew, whatever your background is, you would have a, an understanding that, quite honestly, we miss in today's culture, that you were to approach God and you were to give him something in that day. And in, in Christianity, because Jesus Christ was our ultimate sacrifice once for all, we now, in response to that, present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. John MacArthur writes this of the approach that we have in the church today, and I think he, he captures it well. He says, countless thousands of people, including many genuine Christians, flock to various churches, seminars, and conferences in search of personal benefits, practical, emotional, and spiritual, that they hope to receive. 
They do just the opposite of what the Apostle Paul so plainly emphasizes in these verses. In this forceful and compassionate exhortation, the Apostle does not focus on what more we need to receive from God, but on what we are to give to Him. The key to a productive and satisfying Christian life is not in getting more, but in giving all. Not in getting more, but in giving all. The Apostle Paul introduces this chapter by saying, presenting your bodies, everything that you are, to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, once again, when you were a sinner, you, you, were, you were not clean. You were not cleansed by the blood of Christ. But when you trust in him, he, he creates in you a new creation in Christ, and you are good to go, so to speak. You are in right standing with God, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ has done. But at that point in time, you begin to now follow God as a disciple, and he desires that you live and follow him in a way that is honoring and glorifying to him. As a disciple, not everyone is a disciple. In fact, a lot of people followed Jesus who claimed to be disciples but later fell away. What is a genuine disciple and how are you to live? Well, the very first thing is this. You have to make this decision. You made a decision to trust Christ and you claim to follow him as Lord. And you ask for forgiveness if, if you've ever truly trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, asking for forgiveness of your sin. He washed you anew. But that was a decision. Then you have to make a decision each and every day whether or not you truly want to follow him. And the decision is ours. Are we willing to follow God? John Maxwell, in his leadership book entitled uh, 26 Critical Lessons Every Leader Needs to Know, number lesson, lesson number two is this. The toughest person to lead is yourself. The toughest person to lead is yourself. Getting up each, each morning, getting up this morning, what did you do? You may have been engaged in things that you don't even want to do, right? Maybe your idea is to get up early at 5 o'clock and go work out and have a healthy breakfast, and you found yourself laying on the couch eating a cinnamon roll or maybe some Pop-Tarts, you know? You, didn't even, you were too lazy to even put them in the toaster, so you're just eating them right out of the bag, right? You're like, well, another day I messed up, right? It's hard to change, but it begins with this. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, and this is where it gets challenging. In the Greek, it's logios or logikos, latrell. In the ESV, it simply says spiritual worship. This idea of presenting your body as a living sacrifice he calls, which is your spiritual worship. This is the challenge. In today's culture, that translation can get twisted really easy. Spiritual worship in today's culture is a lot of times just walking through the world, kind of dancing and hopping, and you're having a great time, and you're, oh, I love God. God is awesome. Hey, Brother Bob, Sister Sue, hey, we're all good. I'm just worshiping the Lord. You ever meet anyone like that? 
makes you want to slap them, right? <laughs> no, they've at least made the decision, right? Some of us, we're kind of old and crotchety, and we haven't even made that decision. They're trying at least. They're doing their best. But here are the Greek words. Um, I won't even, I'll, I'll wait on the, the dictionary or the lexical definition of those. Listen to a couple other translations and how they translate these two words, and you'll get the idea of what's maybe going on. In the New King James, it says, which is your reasonable service? Same with King James. Uh, the Net Bible, a new translation, an internet translation, again says reasonable service. The Lexham English Bible, a, a Bible for a probably one of the premier computer software programs for Bible studies these days, their translation says reasonable service. That sounds like it was written by an engineer, right? You got spiritual worship, yes, reasonable service. That's engineer accounting sort of stuff. And no offense to our engineers present. So what's going on? Perhaps the best translation was by Darby, who is the inventor of, of uh, a theology that we touched on last week. In, in the turn of the century, he translates it intelligent service. The Holman Christian Standard and the ESV, I think, get it wrong today because of the common misunderstanding of spiritual and worship. You see here, the word for spiritual is not pneuma, like spirit, like it is used in most of the New Testament. It occurs here and two other times only in the New Testament. The other time it occurs in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, it says in the New King James, as newborn babies desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The word, word, that's the same word used for spiritual in the Romans verse. The, let me give you an idea of what the Greek lexicons. If you're not familiar with, with Greek, the New Testament was in, originally written in Greek. And so if we were having trouble with a word, we would go to Webster's Dictionary. Well, in Greek, you go to what's called a lexicon. And there are a lot of them out there. The gold standard is one called BDAG. And it says, in defining this word, carefully think through. Carefully think through. In the analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament, it defines this as rational or reasonable. That's where those translators are getting that term from. It is to take your mind and to carefully think about, and then this word for worship is only used five times in the Greek New Testament, and it's often used for service, or specifically in Hebrews, it's talking about the ritual service of the priesthood in the Old Testament, making a comparison now. And so the ritual duties are the service. So you have this carefully thought out service. That's quite different than just the spiritual dancing around, going, oh, I, I worship the Lord. Now there is a place for that, right? Dancing, praise, all of that. But here he's talking about if you're going to present your bodies that are, that are good, and pleasing and acceptable to God as a living sacrifice, you have to think through that. It's like in the Old Testament, if you approach like the temple and you just wanted to throw out some sort of sacrifice, you did that one time because the penalties were severe. The priests themselves had to so carefully live and dress and act in a certain manner in which they would be ritually pure before they would enter the temple. That's the concept that he's driving at. If we want to really present our bodies to God, we have to carefully think with our minds 
how we are to live, how we are to live things out. It's specific. And this is where we join into the next passage of Scripture, how it connects. Because it's not just moving from spiritual worship to, oh, now we need to talk about our minds. No, it's this idea of carefully thinking how we are to live before God and to serve Him. The challenge is this. He says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Wow. When's the last time you tried to renew your mind? High school? College? Some of you work, have been required it. When is the last time you've actually had to remember anything? You've got post-it notes and a smartphone. What are you really remembering these days, right? Maybe, I don't know, to eat? Are you, I mean, seriously, when have, when's the last time you really actually had to sit down and, and come up with something new in your life and recall it? It's probably when someone forced you to. That's why you don't like doing it now, right? I can remember walking out of high school. College I enjoyed. I hated high school. I'm like, I am never taking another test in my life. As a matter of fact, the last year of high school, I specifically tried to memorize stuff just so I could forget it once the test was done. I was like, yeah, you're going to make me memorize all that History, no more. I'm, a, I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to kick it out of my mind. Unfortunately, I got in the habit of doing that. I'm pretty good at it. I can really forget stuff easily now. I, I don't have to work at it. But, but let's take a second here. Do not be conformed to this world. Are you? Let's be honest. Are you conformed to this world? How do you eat? How do you use your finances? What are your thoughts as far as what a wife or a husband ought to be? Do you know any of God's word that have actually formed that thoughts or are all your thoughts and your perspective based entirely on this world? Now, you might not think they're bad stuff, but let's just be honest. Is it God's thoughts and his ideas or the world's? Your hobbies or lack thereof. How you work, how you approach work. Do you know what God says about that? We're going to be talking about this in February as I lead the church through a very specific plan on discipleship. But are you really conformed to this world or are you conformed to God? He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say be transformed by going to church every Sunday, by going to endless Bible studies, by reading your Bible even every day, right? I mean, it's great reading your Bible. All this stuff that I'm about to, to lay out for you is good stuff, but does it actually transform your thinking? How can it if you leave it immediately? By praying lots, by serving in church three or four times a week, by going on mission trips, by supporting orphans. Supporting orphans is great. We do that as a church. Does that transform your mind? No. As a matter of fact, you might find out if you don't have that transformed mind before you support orphans, it's a real problem once you get orphans because you have all sorts of challenges that, that you never even dreamed of. What about loving people, right? That, that's, that's really good stuff. That's, that's commandment number one. But does that transform your mind? Just simply loving people? No, it, you love up to a point, and then you want to slap them, right? You, you, you reach that point where it, it's tough. How about being generous? We're going to talk about that in the new year. No, none of that actually transforms your mind. Romans 8. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Even though we're only going to cover two verses in 12, I want to encourage you to turn to a couple different spots in your Bible this morning. Romans chapter 8, Paul had, earlier 
touched on this subject about how this begins to work, what it really looks like. How do we worship God through our mind? In the New King James, I'll read, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To have a spiritual mind, a mind that has been transformed, you now no longer think according to the world, but you've set your mind on the things of the Spirit enough that you are now spiritually minded. Do you know anyone like that? There are some people who know a lot of Scripture, but they're just kind of really religious and annoying because they're spouting it off, but the rest of their life really doesn't reflect it. You see, you can know something but not apply it. We're not talking about Pharisee sort of stuff where you know the law really well or you know the word, but you actually have to take it Let it change your thinking, which changes your speech and your actions. It's a process. And once again, it's a decision that you have to make. The interesting thing is this. Ultimately, it comes back to, though, a decision to get into God's Word and to memorize it. And that's like a cuss word in the church, memorizing Scripture. People will say amen to it, but don't hold them accountable for it because they will get mad right? It's tough. Memory stuff is hard. One of the books that I've been reading on memory is Moonwalking with Einstein, according to Joshua 4. Moonwalking with Einstein, the reason why the crazy title is there, it's in memory techniques that started in ancient Greece. They have a specific way in which you can improve your memory or work at improving your memory by creating crazy images and linking them together in a story and allows you to memorize all sorts of stuff, so much so that they have memory competitions both here and internationally in America, believe it or not. Uh, we're kind of like the Winter Olympics bobsledding from Jamaica, in, but in memory competition, right? So in memory competition, we come way after the Europeans. They're like way in advance of us, but uh, usually ahead of the Chinese, believe it or not. So we always come in like, you know, second to last sort of stuff. But believe it or not, there's a competition, and this guy who was a, just a, a random grad student who, in journalism, not a, like a medical doctor or anything, he decided to research this memory competition, and he dug into it, not only looking at the competition, but at ways in which people memorize, and he thought he would run into people that have, quote, photographic memories, and that they would dominate this competition, but he discovered those people really don't exist except in very rare forms in like a a savant, if you remember the movie Rain Man, that guy is one of the few individuals on planet Earth that can look at at, at some matches that fell on the floor and instantly count them sort of deal. But 99% of the people that were winning this competition, he describes as just people with average memories that put forth the effort and the dedication. And so afterwards, he's on a lot of talk shows and TV shows, and they're asking him about what he learned and some things about memory. And we have a video clip, and and this will be the first and last time I ever show a video clip from Martha Stewart, but hey, there's there's a first time for everything. But this is a video clip of him speaking, if we can cue that up, uh, speaking about some of the things that he learned about memory and how we are able to function and why we function. Let's roll the clip. You also write about um, our memories and how they define uh, our actions without us realizing it. 
How's that? Our memories are the essence of who we are. And we talk about it sometimes as though our memories were like this vault that we drop information into and pull information out of. But it's, it's actually not the way it is. Our, our memories are always there shaping how we perceive the world, how we move through the world, the decisions we make in it. And that's part of the reason why you know, it's it, sort of important that we invest in them. Well, your brother Jonathan, he must have some. I don't know if you're aware of this, but he's an unbeliever. And he comes to this conclusion, though, that our memories are how we connect, how we go through the world. Not only that, but I said that he was just this grad student who's a journalist investigating this. He decided to jump into the competition and see how well he could do. And just a few years ago, after one year of effort, he won the United States memory competition just by working through it. I don't know if you saw at the beginning of the clip, I mean, he does very strange things. Any of you that go out shooting or, or uh, maybe yard work have those big muffled ear things? He had those laying on the desk in front of him. And if you've ever seen any older person come out of an eye doctor's office, those big black thick glasses, he, he would put, put on the muffles, put on the glasses, and drill holes in the glasses. So he, he would isolate everything, sound, vision, and just focus on like, you know, nine decks of cards that he could recall in under two minutes all in a row. I mean, this is crazy stuff that they do. The question is, is that actually how Scripture says that we should hide God's Word in our heart and how we're able to develop memory and how we're able to recall it? I don't necessarily think it is because ultimately he comes, they ask them the question, is this great memory of yours actually beneficial for any reason in the real world? He goes, well, Ultimately, not really, he goes, because we use external memory aids. I can either memorize a phone number or I can plug it into my iPhone. I can memorize an appointment or I can write it on a post-it note. And so what we've done in this world is in our community where we have television, internet, all this written stuff down available to us, we no longer memorize stuff or even need to memorize stuff. And that destroys our faith. Because we approach God's word that same way. Well, I have the Bible. If I need it, I can go look it up. But that doesn't work when you're at work or when your emotions are running high. So how does the Bible say that we should take a look and think through stuff? Well, let's look at both an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, the Shema perhaps the most critical verse in, in all of Judaism, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And it begins, we're going to begin with verse 4 because of love. We, we don't want to walk away from the concept of loving God, and this is just all about this academic, uh, rigorous exercise of memorizing Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, he says this. This is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these, notice how quickly, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word of God would be saturated in everything they do and everywhere they go. 
It would be visually reminding them. It would be audibly reminding them. And they would be speaking it. The conversations that you would be having would be based upon God's word. The question is, does that look anything like your life or mine today? I don't know. But I know that we can do better. That much I am sure of. Now, fast forward, go all the way to the right in your Bible uh, to James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. You see, what I discovered is having a great memory but never using it doesn't really work. I took Spanish for two years in high school. You know what the sum of that two years works out to be? No hable espanol. That's it. That and like maybe a few other random words. Because I never used Spanish. Even though I lived in Texas, I was like, I don't like it. But if you use something, you recall it really easily. Um, doctors do this all the time. Uh, they require continuing education for doctors. They don't let them just go to medical school and never learn anything again. They require them to do lots and lots of hours of training to keep it top of mind. Well, in James chapter 1, verse 22, it begins with this, a classic verse that many of you know, but how many of us apply? He says, but be doers of the word. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. In other words, don't just go and listen to the preacher and don't just go through endless Bible studies and listen to guys on tape and YouTube deceiving yourselves. We deceive ourselves when we do that. We think that we're religious. We think that we're growing in the Lord. We think that we're receiving stuff, but we're really not. It, we're just a, a sounding board for messages. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets. Right? At once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. Does that sound fun? No. Memorizing stuff isn't always fun. It's not always fun. You have to get past that. Don't whine about it. You have to understand you have to persevere. He says, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. So when we approach being disciples, as I'll, as I'll teach in February, we'll spend Sunday nights, and if you can't get out on nights, I'm going to do it during Wednesday afternoons. We'll spend four weeks. I've got an actual very specific process I'll walk you through. But the challenge is most people just want to memorize Scripture that you know, touches their heart for a minute. But I want to challenge you to begin with memorizing Scripture that you actually need to know for specific purposes in your life. Start with, what does God say about being a husband or a wife? What does God say about children? What does God say about your work? What you should do, what you shouldn't do. What does God say about forgiveness or anxiety? Pick some very specific scriptures that you can do, that you can talk about, that you can work through. Our police officers do a great job here in this community and it's crazy because they're constantly getting bombarded with new laws all the time. I'm looking at this book of laws and like, you really know that? And I go, yeah, kind of. Like, wow, that's impressive. You do all that, plus you like catch bullets for me? You are awesome. No, the, the way they are able to actually understand all those laws is because they're practicing 
they're, they're constantly interacting with people and they're having to, to work through these things. Is that illegal? Was it not illegal? Do I write the guy a ticket or do I let him off? And so they're constantly using it. You use stuff, you know how to get there. If I asked you what your favorite channel on TV was, you would tell me. You wouldn't go, I don't recall what channel it is. It's somewhere. Or if you asked me what your favorite, or if I asked you what your favorite website was, you could get there really quick. Your favorite YouTube channel, your favorite whatever. If I asked you about gardening, you could probably tell me all sorts of stuff about gardening because you use it. If you want to memorize God's word, you have to persevere. You can't be a hearer only. You have to do it. That's the only way you actually take your mind, learn something, and as you transform it, you do it. Think about it like this. If I simply said, I love you, would that really transform your mind? But if I said, I love you so much, next Wednesday, I'm going to give you $20 million if you show up at my house. You'd be like, I'm marking that on the calendar. I'm not even going to worry about memorizing that. And all week, you would be adjusting your schedule to be at my house to receive your $20 million. Think about the opposite. I've had the unfortunate pleasure of walking with people through the process of seeing their spouse or their, their mom or their dad go through dementia or Alzheimer's, and they lose their memory. What's so bad about that disease is it robs them of their identity. Because when you wipe away memory, you wipe away everything. Well, if you have no memory of God's word, you're really just this young, immature Christian who's looking for the spiritual milk instead of the solid food. You're just kind of bebopping through the world saying you love Jesus, but you really are never transformed or growing. Don't be that immature Christian. And he continues on in the, the latter half of this verse. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing, according to the ESV, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I have no idea why they threw in the word by testing there. There's no Greek equivalent. Uh, it's just the best translation would be that that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if you have a transformed mind, you can figure out how to live for God. You don't have to go through life constantly looking for or trying to hear a word from God. He's given you thousands of words right there in Scripture. And if you know them and you have a, you're now spiritually minded, you can look to a particular situation and figure out what is the right thing to do. When you sit down at that Christmas meal and you're like, yes, it's like a redo of Thanksgiving. I get to pile my plate full of all these goodies, and then I get to do the same with the desserts. Now, you can process that through your own thinking, or you can process that through the Word of God, right? I don't know about you, or like, Scott, now you're stepping on my toes. We get, there's like a free pass for Christmas, isn't there? Or Christmas shopping. How many of you love Christmas, but you hate January because you get the, the, the bill in the mail from the credit card company? You spent way too much. You let your emotions get the best of you rather than keeping your finances budgeted according to God's word. Specific areas of trying to figure out what God wants. 
so many people come to me with this question as a pastor. What is God's will for me in the college that I should go to? What is God's will for me in the, the woman I should marry, the job that I should take? I, and I always ask them, and they get mad at me. I'm like, what does God's word say about it? You know, oh, that's such a preacher answer. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just a fool. I, I just, I open up the book and look. Have you opened up the book and look? And they're like, no, I've heard about it before. I was just wondering if you had something specific. I'm like, I do, but you don't. <laughs> it's not important what I know. It's important what you know. Because if I just tell you what you should do, you're going to think it's just my opinion, but it's actually based upon Scripture according to God's will. And you're going to hear it just as my opinion, but it has a foundation. Now, there may or may not be a specific Scripture that says, all right, go to Eastern Oregon University as, a poor, as opposed to University of Oregon. But there's a lot of other scriptures that apply to that, that will help you out. And not only apply to that, but help you understand your priorities in life. And that's what we're going to talk about in discipleship. So many people get their priorities out of whack. God's number one, if you don't know this. Spouse number two. Kids number three. All else after that. In so many houses, it's kids number one, and spouse doesn't even make the list. Work is maybe two, sometimes number one. And so you have to first get the priorities worked out and then God's word according to those priorities. It's a challenge, but it requires mind to truly worship God through your mind. That's what Paul's calling us to here, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to carefully think through life in our service to God, to be transformed, no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we actually might know what God's will is. I'll leave you with this simple question in closing. How many of you, and I want to see raised hands, but how many of you have made a really bad, stupid mistake in life that you thought, if I would have only followed God's word, or maybe even followed someone's advice that had given you advice based upon God's word, if I had only done that, man, how much suffering would I have avoided? How much sorrow would I have been able to avoid? I think most of us would probably raise our hands and say that yeah, I did some stupid stuff. Well, I want to encourage you this morning. Don't do any more stupid stuff. It takes work. It takes thought. It takes discipline. But if some journalist just doing an article that eventually became a book can become the memory champion of the United States, what can a child of God do? seeking his Savior, trying to truly become like Christ with his power, his love, and his perfect inerrant word. What can your life become? Let's start today as a, just a refresher. Maybe you've already gone down that way, but let's commit to starting today 
once again, I promise you in February, we'll get into the nitty gritty and I, I would love to walk alongside of you and help you with that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you so very much. We thank you uh, for your mercies that we can come to you. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness for all those stupid things we've done that we can come to you and ask for forgiveness and you immediately forgive us. We don't have to carry around burdens and anxiety and worries and, and let it destroy our lives. We can start fresh and anew every day. Father, uh, we just praise you. We thank you for your mercy in our life for uh, not just this time and, and your word, but just who you are, your goodness. You are a holy God, sovereign above all things. And no matter what's going on in our lives today, we know you're in control. And if we can just press ourselves into you, we don't have to seek anything from you, but press ourselves into you, that we will have all that we need. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.